those who advocate Irish reunification, they have been losing since 1921. So it's not surprising that they can live with it. They've been living with it all their lives. For unionists, it would be an historic reversal of fortunes, and it would be almost certainly irreversible. Because the general pattern is when you have these uh, kinds of self-determination referendums, they're not repeated. Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's podcast. This month we'll be looking at a major survey of opinion in Ireland, North and South, on the prospect of a united Ireland. It was jointly uh, organised and commissioned by the Aaron's Project and the Irish Times. And in fact, on six uh, days in December, uh, the Irish Times reported quite extensively uh, on different aspects uh, of the survey. And my two guests today uh, also um, have written in the Irish Times on, on these different uh, aspects. I should say that uh, we're recording this on the 18th of January. We expect um, further uh, elements of the survey uh, to appear in the Irish Times towards the end of this month. So by the time uh, you're listening to this, it may well be that the further elements will have come out. However, uh, we're not going to talk in any detail um, about them uh, today. We may have an indication um, of what they are. And in any event, we're hoping to have uh, at least one further uh, podcast because there's so much interesting material uh, in the survey. And I should say, in a departure from usual practice, uh, my hope would be that a future podcast uh, will take into account any questions you as listeners to the podcast may have. I'll come back at the end of the uh, podcast to tell you how to submit uh, those questions. So like I said, we have two um, uh, guests today. One should be familiar, I think, to listeners to this podcast because he uh, appeared on that of September. It's uh, Brendan O'Leary, who's the Lauder Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania. He's a member of the Aaron's uh, Steering Committee. Uh, he's published uh, an article um, in Irish Studies and International Affairs as part of the Aaron's Project, and he's also published another one jointly, so that's two articles altogether. And his most recent book, uh, of many, uh, which was the subject of our conversation in September, is called Making Sense of a United Ireland. And then uh, John Gary is Professor of Political Behaviour at Queen's University Belfast. Uh, he and Brendan have been working together and writing together for about 10 years. So if I can begin, um, maybe just asking you about yourselves, um, how do you divide the work um, in a survey like this? I mean, who is the expert on what, or are you both experts on everything? Brendan? <laughs> That's an unexpected question. Um, I think the, the answer is that on rigorous methodology, John Gary is supreme. Um, I have input, but I defer to his judgment on the general question of general questions of survey design and uh, interpretation of data. Questions were designed collectively, not just by John, Gary, and myself, but by the Aaron's Opinion Subcommittee. And the members of that committee included uh, John Doyle of Dublin City University, Jennifer Todd of University College Dublin, Joanne McAvoy of the University of Aberdeen, and Dawn Walsh of University College Dublin. And the uh, three women I just mentioned, they were crucial together with John, the two Johns, in the design of the focus groups and the questions that were posed to them. So we're at the apex of a, uh, a wider subcommittee. Everything that John and I do is collaborative. We correct each other uh, when we make mistakes, and uh, that doesn't stop us jointly still making mistakes, but our role is to interrogate one another about the assumptions we're making. Well, John, has Brendan made any mistakes there, or is that a fair description of uh, how you divide the work? I, I think it is fair. I'd agree with everything <coughs> Brendan says. And I think working with Brendan is a little bit like um, a, a Venn diagram where there's about 50% of an overlap. So the overlap between us is great because we're both political scientists and think kind of scientifically and systematically um, about politics. So we're on the same kind of 
intellectual and methodological wavelength. As Brendan has says, the 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 bit of the Venn diagram that I more might more populate are perhaps the kind of some of the nuts and bolts of the empirics and the chunk of the Venn diagram that Brendan brings to the table that that, that I don't have is a vast wealth of uh, knowledge and uh, experience of the literature of Irish history, both parts of the island and the international literature on um, democratic design. Thanks very much. Well, maybe you could say something, maybe Brendan, about you know where the idea for this survey, and I'm calling it a survey because, of course, it combines opinion polling and, as you said, focus groups. Um, what's the origin of it? How long did it take to put it together? Um, and, uh, and how was it actually carried out? Well, the idea emerged uh, if I remember correctly, um, from the initiative of um, people in the Royal Irish Academy and John Doyle uh, in particular. So the we all knew that, as far as we knew, no systematic survey north and south on exactly the same substantive questions had ever been organised. So we thought it appropriate, given that Aaron's was being set up, that this would be a major part of our early initiatives. The um, north-south dynamic involved us thinking carefully about how we would get questions that would work, both north and south. And we commissioned uh, Ipsos Mori in the north and their counterpart in the south. We began this process in the middle of the pandemic, and there were issues um, that I won't go into now, uh, which led to the postponement of our uh, initial survey. So we, we, we've not been without problems, but we're delighted to say that we're very confident about the quality of the results north and south. All standard warnings apply. These are snapshots of public opinion north and south. They're subject to a margin of error plus or minus three within 95% confidence intervals. Um, We believe in the professionalism of the relevant companies. John and I have worked with them before, uh, particularly in the north, with Ipsos Mori in the north. So our ambition was to use what social scientists call survey uh, methodology, which for different reasons uh, we think are generally superior to internet polling, at least as uh, methodological um, exactitude currently prevails. So we were anxious to see if some interesting uh, internet polling results would be replicated in our survey results. That's the general approach. John and I were particularly interested in questions related to future constitutional design of a united Ireland. Previously, the two of us had held deliberative fora along with other colleagues, one in the north and one in the south. And in those fora, we had put questions to people related to whether they preferred a united Ireland in which Northern Ireland would persist as a devolved unit, or whether they preferred a united Ireland in which the whole island would be integrated. And we had added to that fundamentally important questions in our view of whether the specific model of the united Ireland should be known in advance of future referendums or decided afterwards in a constitutional convention. So John and I were particularly keen to see whether the results we had in our deliberative forum, which were small events of of 50 people, representative, but not because of the size, as statistically representative uh, as surveys are. We wanted to see if we could reproduce these results or whether there would be variation in the surveys. Lastly, Many of my colleagues quite rightly wanted to combine both qualitative and quantitative research. So we organized focus groups, and the focus groups that we picked on, uh, that we collectively decided on, were those we variously referred to as the neither nors, the undecideds, the don't knows. We particularly wanted to explore their attitudes to specific questions, and we thought that focus groups might be one way of eliciting. Uh, information about their responses. Uh, John, how many people um, were were surveyed and how big uh, were the focus groups? Um, there was um, 
a thousand people um, included in both the, the surveys, north and south. And there was um, two focus groups um, conducted both north and south, which are approximately between six and eight people in each uh, focus group. I'd um, echo everything Brendan has said, and, I, and I'd and it, uh, em further emphasize one point that oftentimes the study of this broad subject of the constitutional future of the, the island is engaged with in terms of snapshot opinion polls, which are, are very important, but typically focus on just um, one or two uh, admittedly important questions. So this whole study is quite quite a different thing because it's engaged in an in-depth quantitative survey which covers a, a wide range of substantive areas relating to the general topic of potential Irish unity. And as Brendan has said, it's um, somewhat unusually, but very, I think, valuably complemented with relevant focus groups. And the combination of those is good because it, it, it kind of overcomes what's often in amongst researchers seen as you either do quantitative stuff or qualitative stuff. So we were keen to, to combine the two of them together. And the value of combining them together is that when you find out something from the survey that's a little bit interesting and perplexing, one can further understand it by figuring out how people talk aloud about it in, in discussions. So it can help you understand the, the statistics that one finds in, um, in the surveys. Just what one more um, methodological question, if you like, um, for for John. Uh, you know, obviously, the breadth and depth of this survey uh, was, as as Brendan was saying, unprecedented. Uh, but without going into the sort of the detail, um, did you find, first of all, uh, that your results did differ significantly from internet polling, and secondly, uh, were they closer? Uh, to the more conventional sorts of of, of polling that uh, that appear in in a number of uh, of media, um, broadly speaking, they were um, similar similar to what is regarded as the preferable way to conduct this type of research, which is the the face to face in home um, surveys. And as an example, we Brendan and I and other colleagues, including uh, <coughs> Jamie Powell. In, in QUB have been working on, on a completely separate project, which is funded by the ESRC. And it's a completely separate study, which was focusing on um, trying to understand the election simply in Northern Ireland. And that adopted the same methodology, face-to-face -face, in home. And the percentage distribution on our key variables was essentially identical to the ones that we found in this Aaron's Irish Times project. Which gives us comfort that these these uh, percentage distributions are <coughs> are robust. Um, you know there are some advantages to doing internet polls. They're quick and they're cheap. Um, personally, I would many like many other people would prefer the um, somewhat more expensive and laborious, but ultimately better quality um, face to face uh, polls. In part because what happens when you do a face to face survey is is that you get a better sample overall because it's a fresh sample. It's not simply looking at people who are in an internet panel and might have been asked questions hundreds of times. And also, crucially, it's got a significantly greater randomization component to it. Uh, because in our study, the people who were interviewed were initially selected because of a random selection of geographical sampling points across Northern Ireland and across the Republic. And the advantage that that gives you is that it enables you to get a much um, broader representative sample of the population. Yeah, I just observe that while the questions are overwhelmingly about the future, uh, you also asked questions about the Northern Ireland Protocol and your results there were actually quite similar, I think, to those uh, which have emerged in the series of polls run by David Finmore and Katie Hayward and Queen's University Belfast in very crude terms, um, a substantial majority um, ha happy or prepared uh, to make the best of the protocol and seeing some advantages, but a, a fairly substantial minority um, quite strongly opposed. Um, 
Now, there's a huge amount which we could say about individual items and elements, and maybe you know we'll, we'll pick on some of those as we go forward. Um, but Brendan, what general lessons might you extract from the the surveys? And then I, I ask both of you: um, Were there surprises um, in 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 what came out for you? As as John said, there were. It was useful to use focus groups. Um, at times to sort of you know look into what he I think described as as interesting um, findings, or where your expectations are to confirmed. Um, so maybe big 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 question, and maybe we can get into the particular um, a- after that. Let let me answer on surprises first, and then I'll go to um, lessons. I think my biggest surprise was the scale of the don't know response in in Northern Ireland to the fundamental question of whether you prefer the union to continue or to unify with the rest of Ireland. To have such a high proportion of the public uncertain as to which sovereign state they wish to belong is quite surprising. About about, about a quarter, if I remember. Correct. And there are those who didn't uh, respond or wouldn't vote. That category is, is complex, but I'm putting a chapeau over, over all of them. And uh, that, to my mind, indicates uh, something very important, that this matter is not decided and not uh, to, not everybody is in one of the two camps. Now, I wasn't surprised to discover that the pro-union side was in the lead. You tend to get, uh, decis- and decisively so for the present, you tend to get that uh, outcome from surveys as opposed to internet polls. And I think what's happening there, and this goes back to something John mentioned, surveys are tapping people who are typically not um, active in the public domain, online or otherwise. Those who uh, It includes more of those who generally don't vote and don't participate. Nevertheless, what's striking is the the fact that the union got 50%, it didn't get 55%, it didn't get 62, 63%. It, it has a bare uh, majority of support. The pro-unity side is weaker, 27%, if I recall correctly. Um, but there's all to play for. And if I was talking about lessons uh, learned, the ones that I would emphasize would be as follows. Neither the pro-union side nor the pro-unification side should be complacent. The pro-union side has to consider that their historic support base, Ulster Protestantism, is declining in relative demographic terms. And over the next decade, uh, personally, I expect uh, a significant fall in that share of the electorate. So the community of belonging that has historically supported unionism is falling. So it will become more and more important for unionists to build a base for the union among cultural Catholics. On the nationalist side, uh, they they can take heart from the high proportion of undecideds and don't knows, but they clearly need to think very carefully about uh, strategy for persuading them. And that would be one area of uh, one one big lesson. It's it's undecided. 10 years down the road, uh, which way things will go, it's all to play for. The second thing I'd emphasize is the surprising degree of um, unwillingness either to consider preparation important or to to make uh, accommodative responses that uh, will follow or will be needed in a united arm on the part of the southern respondents. Uh, they are very overwhelmingly in favor of unification, but not always, to put it mildly, willing to bear uh, some of the institutional policy and possibly financial costs that might go with that. So there's a very strong southern sentiment for unification, uh, less willingness to think through the implications of change. So those are the two big, broad lessons I would, I would draw. I don't know if John agrees with me. He's at, he's at liberty to say so. I'll just echo or, or build on something Brendan said, uh, uh, which, I, which um, responds to your question about what we're surprised about or not surprised about. 
I think I, I'd have two examples. One is things that we were not surprised about, but we think other people are will be surprised about. And that is the findings in relation to the different types of United Ireland. Um, and basically, the very idea that there could be different types of United Ireland, people are surprised about. Yeah, uh, And the fact that well, uh, Protestants, in particular in the North, have different opinions about the different types of United Ireland. They don't like, they don't want a United Ireland, they don't like a United Ireland, but they particularly don't like the integrated version of a United Ireland. But when they're presented with the devolved version of a United Ireland, they're, they're less dismissive of it. They're less unaccepting of it. Um, and an example of something that we were surprised about and everyone else I think is surprised about as well is the important role played by the, uh, health system in a potential United Ireland. This was a really, really strong effect. And people in the North, um, quite like the NHS, <laughs> and quite like health systems that are, you know, uh, free, at, free at the point of delivery. And if a United Ireland didn't have that type of health system, they, that would really kind of put them off. Whereas if a United Ireland had an NHS-style socialised medicine system, it, it, they would be somewhat more attracted to it. The, but the, the size of that effect, I think we were both and other people would be particularly surprised about. Well, well, I, well, I, I have two questions for John. I mean, the first is, um, who are the no's in Northern Ireland? Uh, and secondly, uh, while, of course, you know, the link between party affiliation, party support and opinion in Northern Ireland is pretty clear, are, are there any really significant differences um you know, in the Republic, uh, among different categories of of voter, especially um, broken down by party um, support. I think, to some extent, we found that they were um, in the in the predictable type of direction when you compare party supporters. You know, Sinn Fein supporters, both north and south, are where you might expect them compared to Fianna Fáil, um, Fianna Gael. Um, I think what comes comes out a, a lot of these is the, the similarity um, between Fianna Fáil and um, Fianna Gael. They don't look terribly different in a lot of we, in a, several of our measures, and certainly not compared to Sinn Féin. Um, in the north, um, Sinn Féin is quite uh, where you might expect, particularly compared to the DUP and the TUV. An interesting element of this overall study is one's it's our uh, um, ability to compare. Sinn Féin North to Sinn Féin South. Uh, so you compare the same party in two bits. Um, and this often leads to a situation where they're lined up with each other. But to give you one example where it was an intri intrigue, they were intriguingly different, um, relates to a question where we asked people, so do you think a model of United Ireland should be specified prior to a referendum or post a referendum? And um, Pete, Sinn Féin in the North were really strongly saying, look, tell us what it's all about beforehand. Sinn Féin in the South were a little bit more, were, you know, were somewhat more relaxed or blasé or whatever is the word, correct word to say. They were somewhat more okay with um, sorting it out afterwards. Uh, but Brendan may wish to uh, elaborate on that. No, I, I, I agree entirely with what John said, that just a, a couple of supplementaries. Uh, strikingly, Sinn Féin South is much more hostile, hostile to Fine Gael than Sinn Féin North is hostile to Fine Gael. They, uh, Sinn Féiners in the North tend to think of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael in, in generally the same way. And maybe a surprise to some of our listeners, uh, readers coded Fine Gael and, um, sorry, respondents from Fine Gael and uh, Alliance, both strongly aligned on economic liberal approaches, um, right wing on the economic spectrum. And that may surprise some people to see that the Alliance party is on the right on economic questions where it's convergent with Fine Gael. 
I suppose, uh, I mean, a, a point about Sinn Féin in the North is that, you know, given the, the rise of Sinn Féin and the fall of the SDLP, uh, a lot of Sinn Féin voters, at least those in their in middle age or older, are probably people, I suppose, who, who would have been quite well disposed towards Fine Gael as the party of the Anglo-Irish Agreement and, and so on. And that may partly account for, for a difference. The, yes, the, the issue which you raised about the very different views on the type um, of, of state we would have um, if there were a United Ireland as between an integrated state and a devolved model, and a devolved model, as it was in shorthand, being a, a reproduction more or less of the current um, arrangements in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, the, In a way, I suppose, the, the strength of unionist support, um, Protestant support for devolution slightly surprised me because I would have thought that maybe the more people thought about these things, the more likely it might be that, you know, being a, a minority in a devolved system, you know, might not seem all that attractive. But um, did your focus groups get into any of that? The particular phrase you used there was, the more the more you think about it. And if we could just briefly refer back to something that Brendan and I had studied previously, which was a mini deliberative public in 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 Northern Ireland, where we elaborated these two different models and gave people a lot of detail on it. And the more they thought about it, I over the whole day, but the Protestants' um, initial um, relative acceptance of the devolved model actually went down a bit, and their initial antipathy to the integrated model went went up a little bit. So um, you're right to suggest that these things might change once you once you do um, think about it. But what, what typically comes out in the discussions in, and, and in our focus group discussions as well on these um, issues is that the devolved people... I, People say somewhat negative things about the devolved one, um, in the sense that it's yes, it's a little bit more like the status quo. It's less of a jump into the unknown, but it could be terribly complicated. Um, having you know two, uh, essentially two systems of of uh, policy implementation on the island, so it could get complicated. And also, given the fact that government isn't actually up and running typically in Northern Ireland. Uh, maybe that's, maybe when you think about it a bit, maybe that's a, a problem with the devolved one as well. Even though initially it sounds not too bad because it's more like the status quo. So this is an example of the, the difference between results we get from our surveys and from the deliberative fora. The deliberative fora, as John say, allow, says, allows us to see the directions of movement in opinion that will occur after discussion. And he's absolutely right. What we found was that uh, Northern support for the devolved option went down, particularly among Protestants, partly just for the very simple idea that if devolution isn't working now inside the United Kingdom, why would it work any better inside the Republic? But there was also a view uh, that was expressed by a small minority that it might be better uh, to take their chances in an integrated Ireland where uh, Protestants collectively could amount, Ulster Protestants collectively could amount to one-sixth of the population and take their chances in coalition formation in the South. What to my mind was interesting as a political scientist in both of the deliberative fora, nobody was interested at all in what is called the West Lothian question, uh, the difficulties attached to um, uh, people having different voting rights over different uh, policy functions. The public wasn't interested in the slightest. Um, so there you are for what it's worth. I was struck, as you say, by the issues which you raised, um, or which you've mentioned earlier, and um, which were important in determining people's um, you know, ideas um, about the possibility of a future United Ireland over and above sort of basic um, affiliation. Um, you mentioned the economy and um, the health system, uh, education, uh, also important. I suppose it's maybe not possible to say this from your work, but one of the things that strikes me, and also I suppose the whole question of the subvention uh, comes into this as well in the Republic, one of the things that strikes me uh, 
again, especially looking at earlier Aaron's uh, research uh, on themes like social security or labor force or living standards or whatever, is that to an extent, one could say that people don't know very much about the current um, state of play in these areas. And they perhaps, you know, at times have a rather um, a rather simplistic and maybe rather out of date view um, of these of these matters. Again, I don't suppose this um, is something you were able to probe very deeply, but it's an interesting question, and it ties in with this this question about what it might be that those who support unity uh, could actually do to to change minds or to win over the the don't knows. I think that's a, a, an astute assessment, Rory. Uh, I think people in the north have not updated their information on health systems. So there's no evidence that people are comparing property comparative performances. So Southern life expectancy, we know from other sources, is has gone past and is superior to that in the North. That suggests at least that the Southern health system isn't damaging improved life expectancy and the National Health Service isn't making up for whatever other deficiencies there are in the North. So updating uh, their priors is vital. And here, I think media effects uh, are very important. The South compares itself, um, its performance to some uh, standard, uh, which is outside of the South. The North generally compares itself to other regions of the United Kingdom. That's particularly so, in my view, of the way the media operate in the North. They don't do North-South comparisons. And that, I think, over the long run, would change public opinion if there was better information. And that would certainly be something that those in the South who prefer a reformed version of their existing health service, they'll need to do that. Um, I think both John and I think there's a certain nostalgia in the North for an idealized version of the NHS. It's certainly not operating uh, cost-free because not only do people pay taxes, but they, in effect, have to join long queues, and that's a cost. It's not totally free at the point of need and the point of delivery. You have to wait. So um, what what we're seeing in the North in response is a very strong preference for an ideal National Health Service being posed against whatever information they have about Southern performance. But that said, if you are going to advocate for a a reunified Ireland, you need to think very carefully about what kind of uh, health provision you're, you're going to advocate for North and South. How do you reform the existing Southern system? Do you go for a version of socialized medicine? And what are the tax implications of that uh, North and South? I think we are certainly seeing at the moment um, in the Republic, as in the North, uh, the imperfections of our current systems and how difficult it can be to reform them. Uh, John, did you want to come in here? Well, it just I agree with everything Brenton says. And just to to add, I mean, if 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 over the next few years it does turn out to be the case that the South brings in free GP um, provision and the North brings in charges to see your doctor, um, you know, if you if you were on the side of advocating a United Ireland, you'd probably think that was great because um, the people in the North who um, like the idea of a of a, of a of a socialized system might kind of think, oh, well, maybe the South is edging in that direction and maybe the North isn't. One, for me, very striking and and quite alarming uh, outcome in some ways was this question about um, the acceptability um, of the different results or the two different results uh, in a referendum. I think it was Brendan who introduced me to the term loser's consent. And the question is, you know, if if supporters of United Ireland uh, you know, if they lose the referendum in shorthand, the impression is that most of them, uh, you know, would not be too um, exercised about it, maybe because they think they could have another go in due course. I mean, even in Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland, supporters seem a little more sanguine about this prospect than, than in the Republic. But there is extremely strong opposition um, among many unionists, it would appear, uh, aligned to party support, uh, you, you know, with... Uh, very very strong unionist um you know determination uh, to oppose or, or at least a very strong dislike of 
um, a positive outcome as far as United Ireland is concerned, uh, to the point that it might be almost impossible to accept. Um, I'd be interested in your thoughts about this, uh, Brendan. So the notion of loser's consent is whether uh, the losers will accept a democratic outcome, for example, in a, an election result that's averse to their interests or a referendum result. And it's widely used uh, among political scientists to assess the um, legitimacy of procedures. Now, what we know is that uh, in our surveys, North and South, the public want to be consulted and they uh, actively want to vote on these questions. So referendums per se are not uh, illegitimate. What we did was to pose a, a scale question on the acceptability of results. And it went from at the extreme end, as you mentioned, uh, the extreme option is almost impossible to accept. Now, it's, it's a good question. It's not altogether clear when you give that answer what it means. Does it mean I'll go uh, into my uh, uh, loft and discover uh, a rifle and go out and fight because I've lost? Does it mean that I'll be so deeply unhappy that I'll contemplate emigrating, as Arlene Foster suggested? Or does it mean, you know, this is this would be a profound loss to me? And I think all of those possibilities are covered by that response. But I don't think we should decode that response as saying instantly there will be a loyalist rebellion, there'll be bombs on the streets of Dublin and so on. What it does mean is that absolutely careful thought needs to be given to the fact that the side that loses will experience that as a profound loss. To take it the other way, Rory, those who advocate Irish reunification, they have been losing since 1921. So it's not surprising that they can live with it. They've been living with it all their lives. Yeah, For unionists, it would be an historic reversal of fortunes, and it would be almost certainly irreversible. Because the general pattern is when you have these uh, kinds of self-determination referendums, they're not repeated. Uh, and the losers don't get the opportunity to win again. So that's, broadly speaking, how I'd interpret the results. They're a very clear signal to the pro-unification side. You've got to think very carefully about what it will be like for the losers. How do you make the arrangements so good that they will experience them as a soft landing, not as a, a radical loss of identity, uh, an utter uh, devastating loss of power or immiseration. They've got to make sure in advance that uh, as many Ulster Protestants know uh, as possible that this will not be a disastrous outcome for them. John, I wanted to touch on another point which struck me again as very interesting, and it's the whole question of citizenship um, in a in a united Ireland. Um, as listeners will know, the Good Friday Agreement uh, says it is the birthright um, of those in Northern Ireland uh, to be define themselves and, and be accepted as uh, British or Irish or both, as they may so choose. Uh, and in the the poll, you you asked questions um, about you know the different kinds of uh, combination which might be possible. Uh, but what really struck me was the extremely strong level of Protestant support for the retention of a British-only uh, citizenship, uh, and which, of course, if that were to happen, could cause quite considerable problems. For example, you know, under the Constitution, as it is now, you know, only citizens can vote in referendums, only citizens can vote in presidential elections. So um, I'd be curious to, to know how you would uh, decode that. Well, um, I'm tempted to flip that over the net to Brendan. He knows a lot more about this than I do. <laughs> um, serve received. Um, I, th I think there are several things here, Rory, that need unpicking in the decade ahead. One is what is precisely the obligations on Ireland um, that are attached to the Good Friday Agreement. Um, I think under the Good Friday Agreement, on one interpretation, though of course the South is obliged to recognize in perpetuity the British citizenship rights of those born in the North, provided, of course, that the residual United Kingdom uh, preserves that commitment itself. That, I don't think, is in dispute. What is in dispute, I think, is whether the South uh, cannot, in effect, legislate 
or make constitutional amendments to make those British citizens also Irish citizens. Because otherwise, they would be in the peculiar position of recognizing British citizens, but not giving them full voting rights. Um, now, of course, that would be their own choice in that scenario. They'd be opting out of the possibility of full citizenship rights. So the question would then become, could the constitution be modified in some way so that Irish people, uh, sorry, that northern people who wish to retain their British citizenship don't have to become Irish citizens in order to exercise these specific rights. Now, there are complexities here. If we think about um, the head of state, it would be bizarre, I think, for Ireland to be obligated as a result of the Good Friday Agreement to say that somebody can run to be president of Ireland who is not a, an Irish citizen. That would be very strange. And it would equally be strange to think that the Good Friday Agreement made a, a commitment in some sense to change the status of the head of state in the UK, that somehow uh, the next one might be a Catholic or something like that. So we have to think through very carefully what are the actual legal and normative implications of um, the obligations in the Good Friday Agreement. Now, to get back to our survey results, what the survey results uh, show, I think, is the very strong British-only affirmation of Ulster Protestants. Uh, no surprise. They also show that whereas Southerners are willing, in some measure, to accommodate uh, either British only or British and Irish, there are strong pre preferences for a uniform citizenship. And that also shows that they haven't learned the uh, whatever lessons from the Good Friday Agreement that the Irish government uh, wanted them to know. So, for me, it's further evidence of the preparatory work that has to be done on these questions. I think there are reasonable uh, solutions that can be found to them, and they need to be uh, specified well before there are actual referendum campaigns. Of course, a general point, which I think people often kind of overlook or, or misunderstand, uh, is that, of that it is, of course, possible for elements of the Good Friday Agreement um, to be to be changed uh, in a new settlement. However, that settlement would be uh, worked out and and validated, uh, and you know, so it isn't that uh, we will be prevented by consensus or otherwise from from changing aspects of the agreement. Uh, J John, you wanted a word. Yeah, I mean, just to build on what something um, Brendan said, he was um, you know emphasizing that the people in the south if they really want to accommodate potential incoming uh, Northern Protestants to the United Ireland, should maybe perhaps be a little bit more accommodating and a bit more appreciative, perhaps, of the fact that you could have a British-only citizenship. So it, one frames this discussion in terms of how can one minimise um, or, you know, uh, uh, or sorry, maximise losers' consent. So from a Protestant unionist perspective, if there's going to be a United Ireland, and they and they and you know lots of them really don't want it. What exactly is it that could happen such that they might be less unhappy and more like to to consent to it? And as and as Brendan has just said, the British uh, how we how generously disposed we are to our interpretation of citizenship is one thing. I would also want like to come back to our debate about the type of United Ireland because it's it's similar type of point. And the percentage difference in Protestant um, almost unacceptabilities was, was yeah, I hope I get remembers in the figures right, it was 33% for an integrated model, but only 20% for a devolved model. So it's similar. If you were advocating United Ireland and you wanted to maximize um, losers' consent in the North, then you might have a generous disposition towards your interpretation of citizenship. You might advocate a particular model of a United Ireland, which was a devolved one, because you know that it's more likely to um, be or to, to lessen the unacceptability. And you might be more open to doing things that you mightn't have thought of doing before, Sym symbolically. So, for example, being um, conciliatory about having a new flag, a new anthem, and maybe, God forbid, uh, rejoining the Commonwealth or, or things like that, because all of those things 
our findings suggest, would maximize losers' consent. Yeah, it's interesting. In a in a class I took recently in Trinity College of history students, one person in response to these arguments said, "Well, if they're if they're joining us, and um, why can't they simply accept things as they are?" And um, which would seem to be quite a widespread view in the South uh, or instinct in the South. But it, you know, and again, this is borne out by results. We're coming to the end of our time, so looking forward, maybe first of all. I mean, and this may question may well have been answered by the time this is uh, is 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 broadcast. Uh, but what outstanding elements of of this survey uh, remain to be published, uh, John? If if all goes according to plan, um, at the end of the month, we will um, publish an article which investigates the extent to which there are um, cross border networks. So, for example, we ask people in the north, oh, do you have friends in the south? Do you have family and relations in the south? How often do you visit the south? Do you stay overnight? And we ask all these questions of people in the south as well. Do you have friends in the north, family? Do you go and visit? Do you stay over and so on? And we, we, we're able to um, tell a story about the extent to which there's basically cross-border contact, cross-border social networks and social relations. And we, Additionally, um, investigate the extent to which this politically matters. In other words, we relate it to attitudes to Irish unity in order to investigate whether people who have a lot of cross-border connections are more open to um, getting rid of the border. Um, we, In addition to that, uh, we also, as um, Brendan alluded to this uh, a little bit earlier, we in, a in an additional article, we investigate the extent to which people in the north are similar to or different from people in the south in terms of their positions on some basic policy dimensions. So we investigate the extent to which people are very left-wing or right-wing on the issue of government intervention to lessen economic inequality. We, on a social liberal to social conservative kind of ideological spectrum, we investigate north-south differences in terms of people's propensity to support same-sex marriage and abortion provision. And we also investigate um, the extent to which north and south are similar in terms of the ideological labels that they are willing to embrace. So we ask people a question in which a, a, a longish list of um, ideological labels such as social democrat, Christian democrat, unionist, loyalist, environmentalist, feminist, and so on, were asked in the North and in the South and asked people to pick up to four of those. And uh, we compare whether um, there are cross-border ideological soulmates, if I put it that way. One thing I would amplify in uh, John's uh, very accurate summary. If you think about north-south interactions, uh, these have um, implications for strategy. Now, there's a problem of causality here. Do those who most engage in north-south activity, are they already the ones who are most pro-unification? And the ones who don't, are they already the ones who are most hostile uh, to any transformation? But this is an area where we think there's a convergence between those who we might call the shared island unit uh, philosophers and those who are part of Ireland's future. We would say, looking at our results, that increasing north-south connectivity in all sorts of ways, uh, infrastructure um, and encouragement of of literal movement across the border, if our results are right, that should generally enhance the prospects of unification. So it's perhaps not an accident that unionists take the converse view, uh, treating the South as a foreign country, treating it as somewhere else, uh, actually bolsters their political position. Thank you. Brendan, we're coming to the end of our time, but maybe you might just say a little about future plans um, for future surveys. Uh, it's a good question, Rory. We're going to meet with our colleagues uh, very shortly and deliberate over these matters. Uh, we have an option of rinse and repeat. 
We're probably not going to simply do that because over one year, uh, the magnitude of changes is not likely to be sufficient to warrant um, doing exactly the same thing. So we'll have a discussion over what topics we might focus deeply on. Health might be one of them. Uh, we might consider whether in the interval to do some other deliberative fora before holding uh, another uh, set of surveys 18 months from now, maybe two years from now. We'll have to consider all that very carefully. We are absolutely determined that this should not be a one-off. We, we want to continue this. Uh, we want to do it in, in interaction both with um, all our fellow colleagues involved in Aaron's and in response to any critical commentary citizens or others might have. So we're warmly looking forward to the opportunity of responding to the questions that your listeners might pose. Yes, as we finish, I should say that um, you know financial support for the survey has come from the University of Notre Dame, which is, of course, the partner of the Royal Irish Academy in Arons. And I should also say that, of course, within the Irish Times, its political editor, Pat Leahy, has been particularly committed to the, the project. Uh, I said at the beginning uh, that if listeners would like to pose questions for a future podcast, uh, they might send them uh, to me uh, over the coming weeks. We may well do another one of these in a, in a month or two. Um, my email is rmontgomery1959 at iCloud.com uh, rmontgomery1959 at iCloud.com Now it only remains for me to thank uh, Brendan and John uh, for a really uh, fascinating discussion as I'm sure uh, listeners will agree and to hope very much that we will be talking again before long. Thank you. Aaron's it's a joint project of the Royal Irish Academy, the premier All-Ireland Scholarly Institution, and the Keogh Norton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Keogh School of Global Affairs. Its mission is to publish authoritative, independent, and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional, and policy options for Ireland, North and South, in a post-Brexit context. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more and read the research in full on this and on all the other articles at aronsproject.com. And my thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you.